Suck It Up is a podcast that seeks to amplify the voices of Hmong women. In a society where our voices are often silenced, we want to create a platform for our stories to be heard. As Hmong women, we are often told to get over it, to stop being so sensitive, to suck it up. Pushing aside our feelings and opinions is a norm for Hmong women, because our given role is to be a supporter, never the leader. But as we navigate through this ever-changing society, we must speak up, because if we do not, others will do it for us. In this podcast, we will tell our truths and share our thoughts on anything and everything because our voices matter. Regardless of the challenges we face, we will not shy away from taking up the space we deserve. We are beyond excited and welcome you along this journey with us. Hi, welcome to Second Up Podcast. I'm Nari. I'm Blossom. I'm Maisie. I'm Naomi. In this episode, we will be talking about the model minority myth and its impact on queer Southeast Asian youth. So what is the model minority myth? The model minority myth is a stereotype that characterizes Asians as a polite, law-abiding group who have achieved a higher level of success than the general population. So what's so bad about being stereotyped as smart and successful? The model minority myth erases the different experiences of individuals ignores the diversity of Asian American cultures, and is harmful to the struggle for racial justice. Today, we are joined with Sonia and Baird, who are the hosts of the podcast, Wonderful Things. Wonderful Things is a youth-led podcast that fosters conversations around politics, social issues, pop culture, relationships, sexual health, and so much more. You can listen to Wonderful Things on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow them on Instagram at WonderfulThingsOfficial. Since this is a collaboration, we also recorded another episode about sex education and its impact on youth. If you are interested in checking that episode out, it can be found on all of the Wonderful Things platforms. So welcome, Sonia and Derrid. Thank you so much for joining us in this conversation today. Yeah, thank you guys for having us. We are excited to talk to y'all. I've been listening to all of your episodes and yes, woman empowerment. We love it. My name is Jared. I am from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I go by any and all pronouns. Hi everyone. I'm Sonia. I am from Philadelphia as well. I go by she, her pronouns. So can you guys give a little bit more background into your culture, um, where you're from and how you were raised so we can get a better idea of who you are? Uh, so I am Cambodian American. I live in South Philly. I guess you can say I've been attending public school all my life up until high school where it was charter school. I really do have a lot I really do have strict parents and even though I'm 18 going to college, I still cannot get in the house get out of the house freely or I still have a quote unquote curf- curfew. Girl, you don't even have curfew. Your curfew is like 11 a.m. in the morning. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So um, basically, I grew up in a strict household where dating is no go. Forget about sexuality. Forget about safe sex. Forget about l- being a independent woman. Just basically, I was always taught to learn to have that idea that family comes first. Family is very important. Doesn't matter you have friends or not. Friends aren't thicker than blood. So I grew up in a household where it's mainly prioritized that family is your priority and then school. So then based on that childhood, it kind of crafted me into this person of figuring out 
how can I develop good friendships that are not toxic and that are not similar environment to how I live through my life as in my family. So right now I'm at this stage of trying to learn how to keep friends because I always end up just like, oh, okay, I have friends. All right, bye. And I keep going. Like I don't know how to keep friends because like being in an Asian household, to me, family is the thing that comes first. Although I don't necessarily 100% believe in it because toxic families shouldn't be something that be a part of your life if it's bringing you down. So with that, I'm learning how to grow away from the toxicity of the Asian parenting and the Asian community, as well as learning how to navigate on my own. Yeah, I think just to go off of that, a lot of what Sonia said is relatable. So I'm also Cambodian, and I was born and raised in Cambodia, actually, and I didn't immigrate here until I was around like 10 years old. And I think coming here has just been a different, a big transition for me. Education has been more of an emphasis here now for me as well, because I think like educational systems suck in Cambodia. I think just coming here, there's a lot more expectation. There's a lot more family priority and stuff like that. It's kind of like what Sanya mentioned. So I didn't, I don't want to go into it. The life being an immigrant and then like coming here, it's completely different and something that I'm still learning to kind of transition. What do you think identifying as queer means to your parents? The thing is, it's like, we don't even have that word in my culture. So the only word really within the LGBT community that they really know is gay. And that's the only thing that they know. They don't know about bisexuality. They don't know about um, transgender. They don't know about any of that. It's a hard thing to explain to them. To my parent, I think like being queer just means being gay. Because I think that's the only thing that they know. And then for my family, I don't know if this is for others or if you had this type of conversation, Derek. But whenever it comes to the topic of like, gay rights or um, anything related to the LGBT community, my parents tend to say, oh, I don't care if you're gay or not, but don't get married. Like, that's the main thing that I hear a lot in other Asian families that like, I don't care if you're gay, just don't get married, which again, defeats the whole purpose of love who you love. So it defeats the whole purpose, like, oh, I'm okay with you, just don't get married. So that's the confusing part. And that part that I know my family tends to have that as their like cover up, like, oh, I'll accept people from the outside, just not you. Because I feel like for me, they won't accept people within their family who are different, who are quote unquote a little bit different from the norm or what they were taught. Religion has been a big part of my parents' upbringing, especially my mother. So that's how she kind of like relate to this idea that oh if you're different you're wrong and anything that's different from the Cambodian aesthetic or the Cambodian tradition it's just quote-unquote sinful. I feel like it's also going back to that you know family value thing it's like if you're queer or if you're gay like you can't really have children's you know you can't really continue the lineage of your family of your you know family name so that's something too my parent is like oh how are you going to continue family tradition when you're you can make babies touching on a point that you brought up Sonia I hear this often too like in my family where it's like oh I don't care if other people are but my child can't be you know so they're like by saying that they're inclusive but in reality it's like no you're not Mm -hmm. in an article that we read by Anthony Ocampo it stated that for many Asian Americans families being a good student is synonymous to being a good child. 
Thus, on numerous dimensions, being gay disrupts one's abilities to fulfill these expectations, given that families generally display an aversion toward non-heteronormative sexual orientations. Do you guys feel like you aren't fulfilling the expectations of your parents or family? Do you guys feel guilty for feeling guilty? This is a thing that I think about all the time. Going back to what I said earlier about this emphasis on family and like my parents, they always talk about wanting grandchildren and stuff like that. And a lot of time I do feel guilty for not being able to fulfill that expectation that they have because it's an expectation that I guess it's always kind of like their dream or their goal is that's the next step in their life is like after they become a parent, they become grandparents. And that's always this there's a cycle that they go through. There's different steps that they need to fulfill. And because I come in and I disrupt that steps for them and I disrupt that cycle, I think for me that it, it, it makes me feel guilty for not being able to provide my parents with what they want. Because I, I don't know, I feel like they have given up a lot for their life as well. And then for me to not be able to like do some, I don't know, it's at the same time, it's like a whole life that you're giving them, like a whole grandchildren. Do you think that they would be acceptable to the option of adoption? No, because that's not blood. Family is blood. That's what it is. It's like they want to continue that lineage, continue that family name. So adoption, it's like, I see it as a good thing. But to my parents, it's like, no, because you're not continuing that bloodline that we have created. I feel like you also have that like immigrant pressure, like, oh, my family did this for me. Why can't I do something so simple? Or like, let me give them one wish. I feel like I'm on a completely different other end because my family definitely honed in on the idea of family. It has been harder for me to like get a grasp of who I am and like what it what does it mean to be a good daughter? What does it mean to be a good student and stuff like that so for me I never I don't feel the guilt yet probably not yet until I reach up to the point where I accept everything but the reason why I don't feel the guilt is because I don't have a connect a strong connection to family so me for me being a good student is just for myself I'm doing it for myself not necessarily for my parents but the fear factor comes in into like oh they think I'm a failure so then that also influenced how I try my best to be a good good student which also translates to being a good daughter and then for me we never really talk about sexuality let alone dating we never talk about dating at all so I don't know what their perspective on dating is because it's just that hard because I feel like my family is very stubborn to their old ways because they are the one who did immigrate here to leave their family and then forever in order for them to revert into this quote-unquote like whitewash or like getting away from what they were taught is like very hard on their end and then coming face to face with their daughter who's different and who is more modern is also for harder for them to grasp but grasp at that idea so for me I don't have any guilt just yet because they haven't even talked about grandkids they don't talk about kids like again dating was nowhere near in the sentence of my family like I, if they hear boy if they see boy it's like you're out like you don't want to hear that and I'm like well, you don't know I have boy and girl too, but it's okay, it's okay. I was just going to add in how like, I guess it's not weird, but it was just uncommon for me to hear how you said that your parents don't really talk about like love relationships because I feel like when it comes to like strict parents, they always try to force you to be a good daughter, right? And so with that, I feel like comes along with being a good wife someday. So mm. when you say that they hone in like the family aspect family. into your life, like, I just find that kind of, like, uncommon that they don't talk about, like, oh, find a good husband, right? Yeah. Because 
that's the way that they were raised? Yeah, for me, I guess my, my family is a little bit complicated because I think they're very uncomfortable with the idea of so-called losing your daughter. Because of that, they never really talk about relationships or anything related to kids. If she's not leaving us for a future partner, then she's going to stay with us. In one of your episodes on Wonderful Things, Sonia, you said that you knew you were bisexual before you knew you were Asian. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, did you ever feel like you were stuck between the different worlds where you weren't enough of one of your identities? Of course, girl. Of course. Like I said earlier, I'm very, like in general, I'm very, uh, I'm very distanced to things. Like I watch things on the standby. So that also includes my multiple identities. <laughs> so like with my Asian side, I never came to a peace with it as well as my um, sexuality so I think growing up in a public school although we although I went to a school are that are half and half of um, people of minority and half of that are white we just never because we were so little that that concept of race being Asian was just not something that appeared in my mind or not something that was prevalent. Like I knew I was Cambodian. I just didn't know the term was Cambodian as an Asian or that's something I should be proud of because like all along I was been forced to bring this idea of like being Cambodian also relates to religion because my parents, my parents were very religious. So I ended up being forced to do a lot of things that I didn't like to do yet that I didn't like to do because of this religious aspect. So that's why I became very distanced with this idea of being Asian American. However, in high school, I met, guess who I met? I met Darren, who was the first introduction to this idea of, he said, you're Asian. (laughs) (laughs) You're Asian. So he was the first introduction to me as being uh, somebody who, Darren might disagree, but to me, he was somebody who looked at the time, looked like somebody who was very comfortable uh, being an Asian American queer person and I was like oh that's cool when I first started high school he taught me not taught me he just yeah, he informed me of like the LGBT community which I never knew anything about like I said um, the word gay never appeared throughout my whole childhood I didn't know what gay was I didn't know what bi was up until I met Derek and because of that I was introduced to a community where it was very friendly so the association of love and like the environment of friendliness crafted the LGBT community in my head as something welcoming and warm. So there I was able to easily identify as being bi or the label that I gave myself at the time because I was able to accept that, oh, I think I'm this or over time I am this while still navigating that aspect of me that I didn't fully accept. But because I had Darren and good friends that helped me along the way, I was able just to not be so distanced towards the the word bi or queer anything like that but then with the Asian side it took a little bit longer for me to be like I'm happy to be Cambodian American or or oh I know I'm Asian like this is who I am for me I've never really felt stuck between two worlds between my two identity I think my queer like identity has always been like a thing in my mind ever since I was growing up but I didn't come to fully accept that part of myself until I was Um, freshman year and I think for me I was like okay this is a new start it's high school it's a new chapter of my life I want to be able to start this chapter you know being more of myself and exploring that part of my identity and I think that's when I started to get more into um, the LGBTQ community and really going into like clubs at my school and stuff like that because 
that is something that's always something that I've been I've always been thinking about in terms of my Asian identity. I've always felt like the two has been working together, not as separate. This idea of like intersectionality, I feel like I've learned that phrase. I've learned that concept at such like a very young age that for me, I don't see my two identity, Asian and queerness, as two separate things. I see it more as a combination of the two that makes up my experience that is unique from everyone else. See, I strive to be that. I feel like once you're in the LGBTQ community, you learn about these different concepts like intersectionality and all these things. I didn't even know about like intersectionality identities until I met Derek. So yeah, I relate with you, Tanya. See, whenever you were there, you learn something <laughs> new. You learn something new. That's like super important for a lot of people to hear. Like you're not two separate identities. You're just, it becomes a part of who you are. Yeah. So um, after learning about your Asian identity, do you think anything has changed or um? Did you feel more connected to other Asians? Like, does our being Asian bring us together across these ethnic and class divides? I now understand that Asia is a very big, big continent. Yes, she with is. Many, many little other ethnicities that are in there as well. I always thought myself as Asian, but with that association, I thought of East Asians. So ever since high school has hit, I now understand that, oh, I'm not over there, girl. You're over there. <laughs> so I finally <laughs> I finally understand what it meant to be Southeast Asian and that our struggles are completely different, but yet also very aligned with each other. And I think because that I now identify as Southeast Asian strongly because we are so different, whenever I'm surrounded by East Asians, I'm like, oh, shit. These are the top dog here. <laughs> I'm gonna go back into my home and stay where I'm at. So yeah, like although I've now come to a peace with my Asian side, there's just another step for me to get across to like be comfortable with other Asian people because I have this weird sense of I don't know if y'all feel this way, but like when you're surrounded by a room full of white people, you get that feeling is like, oh shit, I'm not I don't belong here. It's that same feeling for me for East Asians, which is very it was such a shock because I'm like, yo, these are my people, but why don't I feel the same way? I feel like I'm divided right now. I feel you on that one. I the word Asian is just so broad and so big. That for me, I when it comes to connection and connectivity, I feel more connected to my Southeast Asian peers. So hey, girl. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like we also have to take into this idea, like East Asian, like the proximity to whiteness. East Asian, their proximity to whiteness is very close. And as Southeast Asian, we are not the same as them. We don't have the same thing. We don't look like them. Ain't my do. Just kidding. First of all. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I'm already, I already feel so disconnected when it comes to white people. So that proximity to whiteness and East Asian being so close to whiteness and how they kind of uplift and continue to uplift a white mm-hmm. standard, white beauty mm-hmm. standard. For me, that's where I kind of feel myself disconnected. So going off of that, do you feel inferior to other Asians because of your specific ethnicity? Going back to what Sonia said about... Um, being in a room of white people, that feeling that you get. And it's the same feeling that I get also when I'm with East Asian um, folks. Because I, for me, I've always, I don't know, but it's also for me, I've always, I always feel inferior to everyone. I feel like when we are put under the term Asian, a lot of people 
look at us and say, well, you're Asian, you must be like, you must be this and that. It like erases your own individual like um, efforts and your own experiences and just places it places it on the term Asian. And I think that what creates that inferiority, that feelings of inferiority and that division between East Asian and Southeast Asian, because if you look at the statistic, Southeast Asian, like Cambodian, Hmong folks, we have like high dropout rate. We like our stats in post-secondary are not high. We are poor. <laughs> we are poor. <laughs> we actually look at South Asia or East Asia. It's like they their stats are a little bit higher than ours. And they're more well known. Disclaimer, I don't hate East Asian people. I just think that I feel like I need that disclaimer for people. I just think that you know, there's levels of privilege and we must acknowledge that for us to be able to have that same relationship and that safe space that I seek. Exactly. And a lot of people don't acknowledge that privilege. And even like, like as Southeast Asians, we have our own privilege, you know? And so it's not to say that like we are so oppressed and like we're, you know, but it's just like acknowledge your privilege, folks. I mean, props to them, props to the Asian culture, like getting it out there. But like, I feel like because of that, we there's underlying things that we haven't discussed discussed or people aren't ready to talk about. If you haven't already, you should listen to Wonderful Things, the Asian representation episode where we talk about this and we go more we like <laughs> yes, we go more into depth Period. about this. And about how like representation, like what does that even mean? Like just because we see crazy rich Asians do we feel represented? Because it's like, it's a story and you're seeing Asians and all Asians cast, which is like great, like phenomenal. It's still like... Is it the right uh, representation or per- um, portray of what Asian culture or Asian is? Yeah, because even for me, when I identify myself, I don't really use the word Asian other than when I need to fill out forms because that's the only box that they have. But if someone asks me, I say that I'm Southeast Asian and that's the term that I've started recently using um more and kind of like really getting away from Asian because um I feel like I'm not I don't know in some way I feel like I'm disconnected from that I also want to touch on one thing that my C said uh this I this idea of the model minority and working hard um and how like a lot of people see us kind of like you know you're smart because you're Asian but not because you work hard but I also feel that's another thing it's like is also rooted in the model minority. This is working hard because white people use the model minority as this division between other POC, you know? So when white people say, oh, you see those Asians, they, they're they killing it. They're getting good grades. They're doing all these things. They're like they're overcoming obstacles. Why can't you do that? And that tool has been used to kind of like belittle and dehumanize the Black community, for example. Black folks who are struggling with all these things, white people are going to be like, oh, why... You see those Asians, they're also minorities. They're considered minorities. They're rising up. They're pulling themselves from their bootstrap. Why can't you do the same? But it's not the same because you can't compare Asian and Black folks. Like, yeah, we go through discrimination, but it's also not the systematic discrimination that Black people face with like police brutality and all this stuff. So I think that working hard is also kind of rooted in the model minority and has been used by white people to divide POC community together. So we're going to like switch and turn it into a different direction here. Um, oftentimes, immigrant parents believe that the way to success is through obtaining higher education. And because they don't have the opportunity to do that themselves, they push it onto their children to achieve that goal. 
So not only is the model minority myth prevalent in outsiders, but also in our very own homes. So growing up, did your parents ever like reinforce the model minority myth to you? And if so, how did they do that? It was never like forcefully reinforcing the model minority myth. I think it was just stuff that I kind of picked up along the way. Because I feel like they put emphasis on like, oh, we came here for you to get an education, you know? And that is like, oh, for you to be able to succeed, um, you need to get an education. You need to graduate with your straight A's. That, yeah, I guess, yeah. My parents do reinforce the model minority myth. I think right now, because my parents right now, they work in factory jobs. And they always use that as one of the example of like, oh, see, you don't want to be like me. You don't want to get up at five o'clock every morning to work in a factory job, to be all sweaty, to be like, you know, um, lifting up these boxes and coming home and, you know, having your body aches. You don't want to do that. You, you should go to school. You should graduate, get a decent job. Like what they see as a good job is like an office, you wearing like nice clothes. A suit and tie. Or... Yeah, that's like their ideal standard of the goal that they want us to end up with. And I don't want to work in no office job, girl. It's also like sort of true, like at least in America, like you, there's like certain jobs that you need to attain in order for you to like actually like survive and succeed. Yeah. Because America hates the poor. Because we are classes. Yes and no, they enforce this model minority myth. My parents looks up to my cousin's uh, way of life because they were the first one to immigrate here and settle in pretty well and live a decent life they always say like why won't you be like your cousin there's so i have four cousins so one of the four has a quote-unquote an american dream job which is being a nurse so then they expect me to do the same thing too where um you need to get good grades because to get good grades you're going to be like your cousin see your cousin went to this prestigious high school she went to this prestigious college do exactly what your cousin did so knowing that your parents like enforce that myth onto you guys do you guys find that you unconsciously perpetuate that myth whether it be like to yourself for me i definitely do find myself perpetuating the myth on myself a lot because i don't know for me especially being queer too it's like i seek validation and acceptance through academic Mm. and that's bad to say but that's something that i definitely do um my parents are very traditional and being queer like i'm not out to my parents so being queer it's like it's seen as something that should not happen. Right. Um, and because I know that once I come out, my parents will be disappointed in that aspect of my identity. So for me, I try to find other ways to kind of cancel out the disappointment because that's how math works. Um, <laughs> Period. Pandas. Because they're going to be disappointed in that identity aspect of my life, I wanted another aspect of my life to be able to be like, oh, that's where I'm proud of you, to be able to see me and be like, oh, I can say that, you you know, I raised you right because you are doing this and this is what I expected from you academically. Even though my identity is not something that they look at as an acceptance, my academic is still something that they still value and still see. So I, for me, I was like, oh, maybe if I do come out, eventually come out to them, it wouldn't be as harsh because, you know, there's aspect of them that I try to kind of incorporate into my life. And so for me, because of that, it ingrained in me this idea that, you know, my value and my identity and my self-worth is based on my academic and what I get academically, the A's and whatever that I get. And I do that. I pu- I push 
a lot on myself and I overachieve in any academic thing that I do. For instance, this was when my teacher started calling me out. Um, I did a paper, my C noses, um, I did a paper on the model minority myth for um, my professor at SWAT. At first, it was just a response paper for a book that we were reading. So it wasn't anything. It was just like you respond to a chapter or a topic that you want in the book. You don't need to do outside research. You don't need to do any of that things. It's just like a two-page response paper. But then my, you know, overachieving ass wanted to do more. And I started doing outside research. And I basically did like a mini, mini research paper on the model minority myth. I sent Derek research papers. I sent him like pages upon pages yeah. of stuff. Because I, I know my C was like into um, education and trying to gap that bridge. Mm-hmm. So that's why I started asking my C about like, you know, statistics relating to that topic. And then my professor emailed me and was like, I just want you to be aware that, you know, I'm very impressed by the amount of work that you're putting into this. But also you have to realize that this overachievement that you're doing is you perpetuating the model minority myth that you are talking about in your paper that you want to dismantle. And you're doing that in real life. And that was like, (laughs) I was like, girl, why she loud for? (laughs) How did you handle that feedback? Because it was like, you said it was like a realization, right? I'm like, first of all, you should be appreciative that I'm putting this much work in. No, but I don't know. It it was weird. Even though I realized that I was like, okay, nothing changed. I tried not to see myself through my academic. And that's something that I definitely am working to dismantle every single day no but yesterday i was like we don't care about gpas anymore and then Derek was like gpa follows you through your entire life <laughs> Maisie, stop <laughs> closing me no that's why i said that it's i haven't been able to dismantle that i try to but it's always ingrained in my mind so were there other students who identified as queer in your school and if so did you ever feel a sense of belonging or a sense of community and did you feel like your school was a safe place for me yes because i'm very involved within the lgbt community at my school there's uh, there are other queer folks but also at the same time it's like none of them are really asians i think i was the only queer asian in the whole like gender sexuality alliance club that we had in our school in a way like i do feel yes there is a community there's a sense of community that we foster and we created within that club for us to come together talk about you know the issue that's at our school, what are ways that we can fix it and other just like have a kind of safe space to vent about our identity and creating solidarity between each other. I think that's something that we did a really good job of in our school, especially with my GSA. My experience was a little bit different because I wasn't as involved with the uh, GSA at our school, but I do give like an incredible amount of applause to Darren and a couple of my friends who were they're um, really helping the GSA become a very, very open and uh, safe space. But for me, I necessarily didn't take the leap to take advantage of that because during that time, or most of the time, I was still struggling into like figuring out like, oh, is this okay for me to be a part of this community? Because I was dealing with the fact like, oh, I'm bi. But does that make me half straight and half gay? Is that okay for me to stand by but dating a guy or like dating a somebody who's male? So I felt very uncomfortable with the fact that I had a boyfriend. So like I shouldn't be invading a space where it's meant for those who are queer. So I was still trying to figure out like, am I good enough to be queer? Am I good enough to be clean or say I am bi? That's an internal issue within the LGBTQ community that needs to be worked on as well. It's like 
biphobia exists even within the LGBTQ community, especially when it comes to like talking about it. People are like, oh, you know, your bisexuality is just a phase. You know, at one time you're going to come out of it and you're going to learn that you're one thing or the other. You're not both. Um, it's definitely still a thing. And that's something, it's not even your, it's not nothing against you. It's like literally an issue that needs to be talked about more within the LGBTQ community. Going back to what do you think identifying as queer means to your parents? So going back to that question, is there a lack of resources or language terms that don't allow you to communicate effectively about how you're feeling or what you're going through with your parents? Does having more translated materials or resources available, does that help more? Yeah. Definitely. I think having more translated resources is a big thing that needs to happen. At least for my parent, I can't even be, I don't even know how to begin the conversation of queerness with them. And even if I do, then it's like when they start asking questions, I don't even know how to put it in words. Mm -hmm. Or I don't even have to say these statistics in words or like these scientific findings in words. Um, so I think having resources with translated um, languages it's important. And that's something that I've been trying to do within my work as well. It's like being able to try to make it as inclusive as possible with different languages, but it's also hard. See, for my end, my parents do speak pretty good English. They're not like 100% fluent, but they are, they can hold a conversation pretty well. But the problem is their concept of queerness is very mixed into the religious side or the Cambodian aspect of what it means to be queer and why it's considered bad. They just don't have the different viewpoint of what it means to be queer. So all they know is this one. So they're very scared or very not used to being out and open to learning something new if they're so used to this being the norm. So that's why for me, I guess when you're trying to explain things, because I haven't explained anything yet. But when you're trying to explain things and explain what it means to be queer or have that conversation, besides having things being translated, what people can do on their end or try to learn is that like pe people better learn or better um, understand things or more open to learn things is when you associate things with that topic, like other things within that topic. I don't know how to explain it, but like association with another topic and bring into like oh you see how this is it's similar to this or you see how this is this is how this person would feel and that's how they will understand better like oh i get it how do you make sure that your perspectives are included and heard and how can let's say straight people help without being like disrespectful to be an ally to the community recognized your intersectional identity i think that's something that i always preach is recognize your intersectional identity realize what you as a person have in what privileges do you hold within yourself and what identities and privilege do you hold and how can you leverage those privileges mm -hmm. and when in terms of leveraging those privileges don't do it in a way that oh i am taking up the space do it in a way like oh how can i help you um how can i uplift your voice in this fight and those type of things um, at the same time, it's like it requires education. It requires learning. There's so many resources out there for you to get involved in. So there isn't really an excuse for people to be ignorant. At the same time, also don't make your queer friends or your, you know, queer Southeast Asian friend feel like they're the tokenized person. So if you have a question, you know, or anything like that, always approach it within 
approach it in a way that the way you word it matters it's it's like don't expect people to educate you you know it's not their job another thing to add like i agree with Derek. i agree with Derek. but another thing to add is perspective matters like how you go about things and how you approach things you just like you need to keep in mind of like what you're doing is educating yourself but also learning weight yeah educating yourself and also putting boundaries and putting boundaries to somebody's personal life and things they choose not to talk and talk to um i think it's important for both parties to understand like Oh, to make it clear, like, I'm, if I come off as ignorant, I apologize for that. I'm just genuinely learning. Don't be like, oh, are you the girl or the boy in the relationship? Or are you, or asking a trans person, like, oh, do, what do you have as like a private part? Like, you know, those type of things doesn't matter to you and it shouldn't matter to you. If you are an ally to that person, you are an ally to that person. You need to know what their sex life is about. You don't need to know what someone has. So yeah, don't ask those type of questions to people. What would you recommend to youth who share those identities with you? Like, especially when it comes to being included in conversations that matter. Take up space. Take up space. Don't feel like you don't deserve the space that you have. And this goes for like Southeast Asian queer um, straight Southeast Asian, you know, take up the space that you need to get your voice across. Our identity and who we are have been erased throughout our whole life. It's been whitewashed. It's been um, put in categories. It's been put in boxes. And for us to really live our authentic self, we need to really explore who we are, voice ourselves, be assertive with our identity. If someone want to talk some shit, like, you know, say it back or whatever um <laughs> and it's i feel like prove them wrong prove them wrong but i i feel like this is it's also easier said than done but at the same time it's it's a work in progress you have to yeah. mm-hmm. learn that the spaces that you take is valuable that you are valuable and that um don't feel like you're a burden for you know speaking your voice or um taking up the spaces that you need to take up because these spaces were made for you you know there's a lot of spaces there's a lot of spaces for everyone in this world. Your feelings are valid. Don't get discouraged by the current process you're in because like Derek said, it's a working process and you're going to reach your end goal. Like no matter what you decide, you're you're going to be you and you're going to love yourself because that's the whole purpose of in a way living life is learning how to love yourself and accepting who you are. So once you are crossing boundaries out there, I mean crossing borders out their borders, you're going to get to a place where you can use your voice and be proud of who you are. It's okay to feel down here, here, and there, but just know that what you're feeling right now is not the end route. It's not that dead end. You're going to go further and further into prospering into the person that you want to be and using your voice to make sure the future generation of life is just going to get better and better. So I feel like that's another thing too, is like if you are in a space where you're still finding yourself, still discovering who you are, don't feel discouraged by that. I feel like sometimes we see people talking about their identity and it's like, oh, they have their shit figured out. You know, we don't. I don't have my shit figured out. Time is everything and you'll learn through the way. If you only knew where I was at six years ago and to where I'm at now, like I wouldn't imagine where I would be today. Don't feel discouraged for figuring yourself out, for taking that time for yourself because yourself is your priority and figuring who you are and your identity and feeling confident and feeling comfortable in your identity and your body and your space is the most important thing. Those are all of our questions. Thank you so much, Sonia and Derek, for talking with us.
Yeah, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you for giving us this time and this platform and this space to talk to you and for bringing this topic to light. I feel like sometimes it, everyone is so scared to talk about it. So yeah, we really respect your work. So thank you. I really appreciate um, being here with y'all because it was really fun and I got to learn a lot about myself. So thank you. Thank you. Once again, you can follow Wonderful Things on Instagram at Wonderful Things Official. And listen to the episode we recorded on their podcast on any podcast platform you use. Thank you for joining us today. See you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to Suck It Up Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to share it with someone. To stay updated with us, follow us on Instagram at Suck It Up Podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time. The music used in this podcast is by Rofu. It is licensed under the Creative Commons and is called Midnight Lover.